This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Craig. On Overdue, we've got you covered on the books you've been meaning to read. But what if you've been neglecting to explore some of the biggest headlines in the book world today? What if? That's a that's a great question. <laughs> well, I would highly recommend checking out Missing Pages, the chart-topping and Signal award-winning podcast produced by the Podglomerate. And even better, it just returned for a brand new season. Named a must-listen in 2022 by the Washington Post and the Guardian, Missing Pages lives up to the hype with its all-new season. Each week, host and acclaimed literary critic Beth Ann Patrick aims to set the record straight on the publishing industry's hot button topics like the rise of book bans across America, the insta-fame of Colleen Hoover, and the idea of who owns what in fan fiction. And not to mention, you'll also hear from notable guests like New York Times best-selling author Jody Picot, Publishers Weekly's Jim Milliot, and many more. So don't miss out. Listen to Missing Pages on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite listening app. And tell them I sent you. Overdue, it's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. I feel like we have forgotten to do scary intros. We've kind of... <laughs> yeah, it's... Yeah, yes. It's been yes, a... You're it's right. It's been a busy month. It's been a busy month, but listen, we're uh, the podcast has been haunted this whole time, possessed by demons. That's why we've been reading all these creepy books, but today, this time, this episode... We're going to get all the demons out of the podcast so we can have a regular month in November. Because <laughs> you don't... Spookvember? What? That's no not thanks. a thing. Yeah. No. You're haunted by the ghosts of a bunch of turkeys? <laughs> Every year I'm haunted by the ghosts of a bunch of turkeys. Yeah. I'm going to mm-hmm. try and spatchcock a turkey this year. That's disgusting. Well... And I don't think you could say that on our family podcast. I'm probably going to be haunted by wet, by the mistakes I make doing mm-hmm. this for the first time for my family. Mm-hmm. Um, so check in in like a month and a half, and I'll, I'll be able to tell you how that went. Yeah, right, because Thanksgiving's like in one month, and then you'll need another couple of weeks to recover from whatever it is that you do. Yeah, well, I'm going to have to hire an exorcist to come... To get the turkey spirit out of your house. To get it out, because he's going to linger. So this is the end of our year, our month, our month of spooky... (laughs) What if we did a whole year of Spooktober? (laughs) Our month of spooky books where we read all about spills and chills and thrills Mm -hmm. on this, our book podcast, where one of us reads a book we've never read before and tells the other person about it, and you, the listener, get to ride along with us Mm -hmm. on this this trip. Yeah. What? Craig, what did you read? (laughs) I read The Exorcist mm-hmm. by William Peter Blatty. Now, for you know, think this is maybe the first one of this year's lineup. You know, Dr. Moreau was kind of a canonical classic, and mm-hmm. we did talk about some film adaptations. But one of my favorite genres of Spooktober book is, you know, that movie was based on a book. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, that classic work of horror cinema was based on a book. Specific, I feel like there's a specific vibe for books from 
like the 60s and 70s. Yes, yes. Where everybody's just kind of figuring out what horror is and all you need to do to to freak people out is just like think of the grossest thing you can write and then you write it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and like you got a bunch of guys who've been like m- most of them are, are guys. There, there are others. But in this lane that we're talking about, it's like guys who watched Hitchcock. But then we're like, what if it was more messed up? Yeah, right. What you if know? it was more gory and less like psychological? Yeah. Well, I mean, still a little psychological, yes. but more gory. But what if more gory? Um, and I have never seen the film The Exorcist. I haven't either. We're not scary movie guys. We're not scary movie guys. We're scary book guys. Now, yeah. I will. I made this joke already last week. But here, what if I hit it with you again? Please. I'm really surprised that he didn't get in on like the 80s and 90s exercise VHS tape craze with a sort of tape called the exorcist that's about like blasting your glutes you know yeah you gotta you gotta exercise your you gotta get the you gotta get your flab out your flab away (laughs) god uh yeah i did i think in high school i think i did a project where i talked to someone about exorcism i wish i remembered Mm -hmm. any of that Mm -hmm. um that might have been a high school project that i didn't finish Uh, yeah i mean part of this podcast that's the foundation (laughs) that's the first layer of concrete that forms the foundation of what this podcast is so you know i'm not gonna uh harangue you too much for not finishing a high school project yes well um (laughs) So this was a this was an interesting read. It's a book that, uh, as we'll discuss, is pretty similar to the movie, and what we can talk about that in more details. But if like if you're coming here being like, can't wait to find out what they changed. Honestly, from what I can tell, not terribly much. Yeah, because this isn't one of those books where the like it's not one of the adaptations where the author of the book is like tangentially involved or he writes one screenplay and then is taken off of it so mm-hmm. that somebody else can rewrite it to make it workable. Uh, William Peter Blatty, the author of the book, also is the author of the screenplay. Yeah. Like, did he win the Academy Award? He was nominated for it or something? I think this was the fir- this was the first horror film to be nominated for the Best Picture Oscar. That's what I have. Sure. Sure, sure, sure. And I'm not sure if he himself got some kind of writing nomination for it. Okay. But, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, but let's talk about Blatty, and then we'll talk about the book, uh, like its background, and and yeah. then I will talk about what is in this so, haunted book. So he was born in 1928, died 2017, okay. uh, mainly a novelist with some screenwriting and directing work kind of sprinkled in there. Uh, he moved around a lot as a kid because his parents had divorced and his mom didn't have steady work. Uh, he didn't really have a stable home life until he attended Georgetown University, which is a like a Catholic affiliated university, yeah. just put a put a bookmark in that. Uh, he had a lot of odd jobs before he became a writer. He worked as a door to door vacuum salesman. He drove beer trucks, mm. and he was an airline ticket agent. He also briefly enlisted in the Air Force before joining the United States Information Agency. Uh, this was an agency that mainly distributes uh, propaganda about the United States internationally. Cool. And its activity, it, it was it was dissolved. Its activities have been like absorbed by the State Department. In okay. So it's not like it's not still um, happening. It's just no, the I mean, agency's it is, gone. It, it is. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, that latter experience in the USIA uh, helped form part of his first book, which was called Which Way to Mecca, Jack? 
Is that the one that Groucho Marx liked? Maybe, I think I that's don't know. the like some comic novel he wrote that Groucho yeah. Marx was like, "Oh my god, a funny novel." Yeah, so that comes out in 1960. Uh he 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 writes a few mostly like humorous books in the 60s. Sure. Uh he wins $10,000 on a Groucho Marx game show. Mm. And then he after that he says he quit working to become a full-time writer. <laughs> Uh, the Exorcist is his biggest thing. It ha- it comes out in 1971. It's a huge success for him. Uh, he writes the screenplay for the film adaptation that comes out in 1973. Um, and then from there, he does a lot of other horror stuff. In 1980, he adapted one of his previous like humorous books uh, into sort of a pseudo-Exorcist sequel novel and film. Those are both called The Ninth Configuration. <laughs> Uh, he did not want anything to do with the formal Warner Brothers Exorcist sequel, which was called Exorcist to the Heretic. Oh, boy. Um, he also wrote and that that movie was critically, critically liked and financially not good. <laughs> did not do well, <laughs> mostly because it wasn't released like very widely. And then he wrote a book called Legion, which he adapted as The Exorcist three in 1990. Uh, ignoring everything that happened in The Exorcist 2, Colin the Heretic, which is the movie that he didn't have anything to do with. Okay, okay. Uh, he wrote, and again, he wrote the screenplay and directed that. And those those three movies together are usually referred to as his, quote, trilogy of faith. Whoa. Um, the movies are, I mean, for all that, the movies are mostly just thematically related. Like, you can kind of make arguments that there are some characters who appear in subsequent movies who appeared in earlier movies, but it's not really a series in the way that we think about it now i don't think i am i am looking up there was a new exorcist film that came out this month called Ooh. the the exorcist colon believer um that does it stars uh, among other people leslie odom jr um, okay. and Anne dowd Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does also star it does also feature ellen burston and linda blair from the original film which i don't know how that works yeah i mean get your paycheck i guess yeah man uh so after the exercise three ex- the exorcist three <laughs> the exercise three uh he was exercised from the film industry because that was his final oh, directorial no. credit and his final screenplay credit oh boy uh, and then, yeah, the, the first book was also adapted into a 2012 stage play, a 2016 TV miniseries. Um, things aren't all great with William Peter Blatty, who Uh-oh. in 2012 sued Georgetown University in Catholic court mm. uh, because it this is from a Washington Post coverage. The author says that Georgetown has violated church teaching for decades by inviting speakers who support abortion rights and refusing to obey instructions. The late Pope John Paul II issued in 1990 to church affiliated colleges and universities. William. Uh, Georgetown should amend its ways or stop calling itself a Catholic or Jesuit institution, Blatty said. William. Yeah, he got really mad, especially that they invited uh, then Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius to speak because she had had a hand in mandating that employers provide birth control to their employees regardless of religious affiliation. Cool. So, you know... There's a whole read on (laughs) this story, both the film and the book, that is really about the anxiety, the societal anxieties of a single mother and her pubescent daughter 
and the you know them trying to exist in the world and them being literally the seat of evil and all of these men have to come in and try to fix it <laughs> like there is there i think there is a compelling read of this story I don't know that that is exactly what Blatty is up to. You know, it's kind of hard to tell what Blatty is up to, especially when you look at the film, which is even more, I think, viscerally effective to people, mm-hmm. you know, like affecting to people. Mm-hmm. And he's got some high-minded ideals about what the book is about. Uh, I have a quote for that later in the episode. Okay. And I think people came out of the movie and like, yo, but that girl's head spun around. Like, (laughs) I don't know what you're trying to tell me about the nature of God in the universe. There was a demon girl and I didn't like it. Sure. Um, I think we'll. okay. let's talk about the inspiration for the book in the book section of the podcast, because I want to kind of finish out our discussion. Let's bracket off the movie movie stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I found this. Right up on well, okay, so let's let's talk about reviews first. Just some fun, <laughs> just some funny stuff because I couldn't really find for the movie reviews. Yeah, for the movie, okay, I couldn't please. really find reviews of the book that came out like contemporaneous. I read that it was well reviewed, did not sell well. He went on the Dick Cavett show and talked about the devil, and then it like jumped on the New York Times bestseller list. He was like a backup yeah, guest end, for it, the Dick Cavett show. It ended up selling like 13 million copies and it didn't, you know, it's not like a thing where it was a word of mouth success that yeah. built up over many years. Like it, it just took a minute to get started. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. The New York Times review of the film calls it, quote, a chunk of elegant occultist claptrap <laughs> and, quote, a practically impossible film to sit through. Uh, one of the nicer things that it says is, quote, it's not an intelligent, an unintelligently put together film, which makes one all the more impatient with it. Amazing. Uh, William Peter Blatty, who produced the film and adapted his best selling novel for the screen, has succeeded in leaving out very few of the kind of ridiculous details that I suspect would have earned a less expensive, more skeptical film an X rating instead of the R rating Whoa. that mysteriously has been achieved. <laughs> Uh, Roger Ebert referred it, uh, reviewed it more uh, glowingly in a four-star yeah. review. He called it, quote, a triumph of special effects and said, if movies are, among other things, opportunities for escapism, then The Exorcist is one of the most powerful ever made. Our objections, our questions occur in an intellectual context after the movie has ended. During the movie, there are no reservations, but only experiences. We feel shock, horror, nausea, fear, and some small measure of dogged hope. Man, e- so. I every once in a while, I think, like, do I need to do a deep dive on Ebert? Like he seemed to mostly get it. He seemed to mostly get it. I mean, I know all you know gamers. Oh my god, really... we can't talk about late aughts gamer Ebert. <laughs> <laughs> I know that gamers did not like him because he was like video games are will never be art, baby stupid. And listen, I don't know. I think maybe Roger Ebert had it right, but because. <laughs> This is a good thing for our book podcast. This is a good thing for our, I don't. Yeah, I don't. We can have a special episode about the Roger Ebert uh, early <laughs> 2010s gamer discourse. <laughs> but what I what I think he does well, if you especially comparing his review of of that to the stuffy New York yeah. Times review, where the person had like went and saw the film apparently under duress and hated every second of it. <laughs> I think Eber is more of a definitely more of like a populist film yes. reviewer. He has yeah. a, he has a better sense of what works in different genre fiction. He's a little less snobby about it. 
I think that has been used to make him seem, you know, like he is too easy on things sure. or he's just like a, you know, he's just like a cheap date or whatever. <laughs> but it's not like he but, writes haphazardly about them. No, no, no. And I think he tends to, from what I've read of his work, he tends to get closer to what the, you know, what like history has judged these films sure. to be. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. Anyway, do you want to talk about this? Write about gamers. Write about The Exorcist. (laughs) Yeah, Roger Ebert was never wrong. Do we need to talk about how this film was cursed? Yeah, let's talk about how it was cursed. Okay, here's my my favorite website ever. Ameri. Okay, the URL is American Hauntings Inc. and Inc. (laughs) is spelled I N K. (laughs) So the URL naturally reads American Haunting (laughs) Sync. So according to AmericanHauntingSync.com, yeah. Uh, which does not cite any of its sources. Good. Um, let's see here. Uh, he uh, so the like a, a product. Uh, one of the carpenters cut off his thumb on yep. the set. Heard that. Lighting technicians lost a toe. Uh, Max von Sydow, one of Max von Sydow, one of the actors who play. I think he plays the priest yes. in the in the movie. Uh, he landed in New York to film his first scene. And apparently his brother died in Sweden at the same time. Mm. And then Von Sydow got sick. Mm. And also lumped in with all this stuff about like personal injury is just like the movie was supposed to cost $5 million and it cost $10 million. <laughs> I read. So, you know, what's scarier than cost overruns? Yeah. And I ask you. It was it was like um, it was Friedkin directed it. And the apparently like. You know, they he wanted so that you could see the actor's breath in the bedroom when it was cold. Mm-hmm. And so they like refrigerated the room. But that meant that like when they turned on all the lights for the cameras and stuff, like it would get too warm so they could yeah. only film for a certain amount. Now, of course, it's going to cost too much money, not because of demons. Yeah. Yeah. It's haunted, but it was haunted. But though. it was haunted. There were some, there were some accidents on set. Uh-huh. And also, it cost more than it was supposed to, <laughs> and so, and also, people died. Also, sure, but people die. You know. Obviously, any film production that lasts for more than a month or so will see its share of accidents and mishaps, says AmericanHauntingSync.com. <laughs> but The Exorcist seems to have been particularly affected by unforeseeable calamities. Coincidence, perhaps, but it left the cast and crew shaken. Of course, it did. Yeah, there's a fire on set. Uh, Ellen Burstyn got like injured because she got thrown across the set in one stunt. Right. And like, mm-hmm. she was like, oh, that could, that could really hurt me. And he was like, good, let's do it worse. And like, <laughs> just, <laughs> that's not a curse. That's just a guy directing a movie bad, but it's a good uh, movie, I guess. I don't know. One of the, <laughs> uh, Father Thomas Birmingham from the Jesuit community at Fordham University had been hired as a technical advisor for the film. Um, uh, the priest was unable to perform an actual exorcism, but he did give a solemn blessing in a ceremony that was attended by everyone then on the set. <laughs> Nothing else happened on the set after the blessing, Birmingham stated. But around that time, there was a fire in the Jesuit residence set in Georgetown. <laughs> okay. Thank you, American Haunting Sink. There are double exposures in the little girl's face at the end of one reel that are unbelievable. <laughs> Just a little... It's not so, believable. It's not believable, says AmericanHauntingSync.com. I love it so much. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> so we'll definitely link this as like the definitive document of all the creepy yep. stuff that happened on yep. the set of The Exorcist while it was being filmed. Exactly. All right. And now we'll go back to talking about books, I guess. Well, let's take a quick break because um, we've got to exercise some commitments in the ad break. <laughs> and then uh, we will be back to talk about The Exorcist. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Andrew, ever feel like your brain is just getting in its own way? Yep. You're so wound up with your investigation of the nature of God's goodness and why he would allow evil to happen in the world that you just can't <laughs> sleep, even though you know that's what you need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes I have brain demons that I think I feel like I need to exercise. I make light only because of the need for a transition. <laughs> Therapy, for real though, can help you talk through what is on your mind, what might actually be weighing on you in the wee hours of the night, and then getting in your way during the day. Uh, It's helpful for learning skills to better understand yourself and what you need, which can be empowering um, so that you can be the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking about trying therapy, give it a shot with BetterHelp. It's all online and easily suited to your schedule. Just fill out their brief questionnaire. You'll get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch uh, at any time for no charge. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com overdue today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com overdue. Craig, sometimes when you're trying to make a website, and you're having problems, it can feel like trying to you're trying to exercise a demon from the inside of the cascading style sheets. Oh, every I assume that everything inside my computer is actually a demon that I just it's, can't yes. control. Mm-hmm. So I need yes. help. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, good news. This week's podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace mm. is a website that helps you make websites. They tame the demons inside your computer to make a beautiful website with drag and drop tools and 24-7 customer support (laughs) and all the other stuff that you need to sell your stuff and publicize your stuff and all the other things that a website do. Let me tell you about some things about Squarespace that I like about Squarespace. Yeah. Uh, Number one, here it comes. Ooh, spooky. It's the fluid engine. (laughs) A next generation website design system from Squarespace. It's never been easier for anyone to unlock unbreakable creativity. Start with a best-in-class website template and customize every design detail with reimagined drag-and-drop technology for desktop or mobile. Squarespace also has powerful blogging tools you can use to share stories, photos, and updates. Categorize, share, and schedule your posts to make your content work for you. And you can also use insights to grow your business, learn where your site visits and sales are coming from, and analyze which channels are most effective, improve your website, and build a marketing strategy based on your top keywords or most popular products and content. Craig, if you want to exercise the demons from your website, I do. go to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Andrew. Craig. When young William Peter Blatty Mm-hmm. was just a a young man attending Georgetown University. Mm-hmm. In his third year, he read a Washington Post article about a kid who had been possessed and a Catholic priest removed the demon from him. 
Yes. And he remarked in, I found an article, I think in some, I think America Magazine, it it is a Jesuit (laughs) review magazine, Mm -hmm. all about the movie and the book. Um, And they quoted him as saying, uh, if there were, like the, this story of a kid being possessed and it being true, this was like the late 40s, 49, I think is when the story is supposed to be from. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, if there were demons, there were angels and probably a God and a life everlasting. So it really seemed to strike him that if possession and demons were real, mm-hmm. that then also implies all of the goodness that is part of the Christian faith as well. Yeah, uh, I guess. I mean, that and that and that I share that not even I did I didn't do other research into that exorcism at all, but that is like the crux of this book if it has aims other than to spook you and freak you mm-hmm. is like he says he kind of like set out to say like well what would this possession do to all these people and what would it make them think about themselves and the world and what effect would it have on the priests who were working on it and like his conclusion is that it would somehow convince you that if your faith had been shaken that you know the good stuff is also real Sure, it would reinforce your faith in a weird way. In a weird roundabout way, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of like... I think that's kind of convenient, honestly. Like, <laughs> so that's one of the things about faith is you're not supposed to need to be able to see like the visible work of literal demons in the world yeah. to like believe in stuff. But you know, there there are a lot of different ways to to do believing in stuff. And when I was when I was reading the like multiple versions of the how the Exorcist movie differs from the book articles. You know, I read one on Looper.com. I read one on ScreenRant.com. They talk about how the film, possibly just by virtue of being a a visual medium, is way more certain that demons are happening. And I read this book and I'm like, demons are happening. But the book is like really careful to allow you an out if you don't want to think that demons are happening. Yeah, like uh, allegedly the um he he decided to write this book after seeing the movie version of Rosemary's, Rosemary's Baby, Baby yeah. in 1968 and he was like I really like how it's kind of ambiguous and left up to the to the viewer to decide whether this baby is actually like demon spawn or not. Yeah, yeah. But I want I wanted it to focus more on like the spiritual spiritual <laughs> struggle. So what if I did what if I did something like that? Yes, and I mm-hmm. I did read that he had originally conceived of it as like some sort of courtroom drama, and then <laughs> instead was like, well, what if I just show all the spooky stuff? Which I think is a better. I I can see there is a murder in the middle of this book that is just like one piece in the puzzle. I could see you maybe like concocting a courtroom tale around that murder or something like it from the plot of the book. Yeah. Yeah. That then all the characters are like arguing about whether or not any of the stuff really happened. Mm -hmm. Um, He decides to show it to you, but because of the way, 
you know, some of the characters behave and things like that. Anything that is really wacky, you could maybe be like, is that a hallucination? Is that a character disassociating? You know, who knows? I, yeah. I think it's all demons. I, I read the book. I think <laughs> it's all demons. Yeah, there, there's a lot of there is a lot of good courtroom fiction out there. I'm not. I'm. I'm I yeah. love courtroom fiction. Phoenix Wright, the specifically the <laughs> specifically the second season of the HBO Perry Mason show, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. I These was are waiting all for you to say To Kill a Mockingbird. I'm just doing them in order of important cultural importance and impact. Yeah, left to right on the Mount Rushmore of legal dramas. Yes. But in this, the good but wife, in this, yeah. in this context, I can't like it. It seems like it would just end up being like a weird, clunky frame narrative for a bunch yes. of spooky stories that yes. you would have to like keep going back to. So yeah, it's good that he just was like, "Well, if I just told the story." Yeah, I think that's. I think that was wise of him. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, this book <laughs> is it is it is a little denser. Is not the right word. There's more here than it. Uh, is in the film. If you're coming to this episode, you're like, oh, I've seen the movie. I'd be interested to hear about what the book is like. Every article about the differences is like, ah, there's more of it in the book. That character's a bigger presence in the book. Oh, there's an extra scene in the book. Like, he he made a movie by cutting out some stuff. And That's then, just how books be, though, right? Yeah. Like, generally. And I, and I don't think that this is a shaggy story. It's just there's more stuff here. It starts a little slow i would say yeah tell me is it is it like a an arc where everything is normal and peaceful but then something strange starts happening or like what's the okay what's the storytelling like i'll give you the two beginnings the first is there's a prologue of a of a ancient priest in iraq at like some sort of like paleontology dig site or something mm-hmm and he discovers he sees a statue of this demon, this Assyrian demon Pazuzu, and he has a bad feeling. Pazuzu's petals. He, oh my god, <laughs> good work. Uh, <laughs> and you don't know much more than that. That's Father Marin. He's there in Iraq. He will come back at the end of the book. He is the Max von Sydow character. Okay. Then we get to the opening of the book. Where we're gonna meet a couple characters, particularly uh, Chris McNeil, who is some famous actress, purportedly based on Shirley MacLaine, um, and her daughter Reagan, who is eleven or twelve. Um, but first, let me just read you <laughs> the first paragraph of the opening chapter one of the book. So the prologue's already happened. Okay, there's a priest out there. He's worried about demons. Cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, Like the brief doomed flare of exploding suns that registers dimly on blind men's eyes, the beginning (laughs) of the horror passed almost unnoticed in the shriek of what followed, in fact, was forgotten and perhaps not connected to the horror at all. It was difficult to judge. Okay. I made a note to myself. I was like, calm down. Mr. Blatty. <laughs> yeah, that's the light. You can he- hear the lightning kind of striking in the, a little in the background. Bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the opening sections of the book have some light, very light poltergeisty stuff going on, mm-hmm. but it is largely setting up all of the re- character relationships and kind of the domestic situation. Um, so let me run through that 
a little bit. We've got okay. Chris McNeil, famous actress, so famous that she gets invited to dinners at the White House. Um, okay, but she is that's not, pretty famous. But she has not yet been able to crack her directing career, which is you know. They're keeping women down in Hollywood, right? Don't you think you could just ask the president? I would think so. <laughs> I would think so. Um, she is making a movie in the Georgetown area with a fancy, drunk British director named Burke Dennings, who's a is bit there, of a is character. There, is there any other kind? Hey. Hey, that's kind of how the book presents it. Like, they're all this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is a recent divorcee. Uh, her... Ex Howard stepped out on her because he didn't want to basically be her like first Hollywood husband anymore. Um, the way that the book tells it is that he got to be on all the magazine covers with her until they had their kid, and then it was about mommy and daughter, and he didn't like it, so he mm-hmm. left. Yeah, um, yeah. Moms had it. Women and kids have it way too easy. Yeah, that's that's the <laughs> picture there. Mm-hmm. Reagan is 11. She's cool. She seems like a nice young girl. I, it's hard to tell because she kind of quickly, relative to the length of the book, starts acting weird. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure that Blatty knows how, like how an 11-year-old is. Like, she seems like kind of a <laughs> precocious 8-year-old to me. Mm-hmm. more than a, like an 11 or 12 year old but that's just i don't know that's my own just like experience talking to kids kind of being confused by this book but yeah i mean i don't know developmental milestones are hard that's to, also true. Hard to that's judge also everything true. is an average of a bunch of kids and she's and, not really a character until she's possessed by a demon <laughs> yeah so it's maybe it's not important um chris has two housekeepers willie and chris they are swedish or german not quite doesn't matter which i guess i'm i was a little confused by it as i was reading um i think the husband is he might be part i don't know the british guy keeps like making nazi remarks to him all the time Um, okay cool Ren. uh there she has an assistant named sharon who is boinking a like horse riding instructor um in town there's like I noticed there's an early like page where it's like, ooh, these like single ladies talking about their single lady lives, like how mm-hmm. scandalous in this horror novel, you know, yeah. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um and that's like her setup. She's got this kid, she's wrapping up this movie that is a musical comedy version of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Uh <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a 30 rock. A little sketch. bit. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Um, I like Chris early in the book. She's kind of funny. She doesn't curse. She says stuff like, what the freak? Sure. Uh, at one later in the book, she says, she uses the phrase Judas Priest as an exclamation. Sure. Um, when she's complaining about the script of the, of the movie, she says, why in freak should they tear down the building? What for? What's your concept, Burke? Why in freak? Why in freak? Um... And at one point, when she is discrediting Sharon's film taste and acumen, she says, oh, you thought Psycho needed a laugh track. I like Chris a lot. I think she's mm-hmm. kind of funny. Um, the par- we get some interwoven chapters that introduce us to Father Damien Karras, um, who is a Jesuit priest, currently experiencing a massive crisis of faith. 
His mother's not doing well. She ultimately dies pretty early in the book. And uh, he's kind of shook by the silence of God. In the, in the mm-hmm. world, there's evil, and much of it results from doubt. Would a reasonable God refuse to end it and not finally reveal himself, not speak? That, sure. that is Karis's deal. So, and that's that's kind of, I guess, where that thematic thing that yep. you mentioned about uh, evil demons somehow reinforcing faith, like, I guess that's yep. where that comes in? Definitely. Yeah, okay. um, so, Karis is not the Max Van Sydow character. He is the other major priest in the in the movie um who is played by jason miller i think um but he is the like he doesn't overlap with chris until like maybe halfway through the book um but he is what gets us to the ultimate exorcism um and so i don't know it starts with kind of what like i said poltergeisty stuff like there's weird rapping sounds in the house. Mm-hmm. My name is Satan, and I'm here to say, That's, yeah, I'm going to haunt you in a major I way. I really, we have, we as a society <laughs> have moved past using rapping as to mean knocking to such that, uh-huh. like, I can't read a book like this and not think what you just did. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I think, I first I think my name is Satan, and I'm here to say, that yeah, kind of rapping. Then I think rapping, like, Christian camp counselor turns the chair around yes. backwards and sits down to rap with you. Yes. Uh-huh. And then maybe I would think about like rap, rap, rapping on my, on door the chamber door. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So anyway, there's rapping sounds going on. Um, <laughs> occasionally furniture is out of place. Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Reagan has been in the basement playroom playing with the Ouija board by herself except not by herself <gasps> with someone named Captain Howdy that does not exist. Okay, this is a cartoon character from a Pixar movie or something. But is somebody who answers questions on the Ouija board with her. Like, mm-hmm. Chris is like, oh, Reagan, that's so interesting. You found the Ouija board. Do you know how to play? And she sits down to, like, do the, like, oh, no, you're moving it. Uh-huh. And Reagan's like, Mom, you're doing it wrong. Like, I asked the questions, and then Captain Howdy moves it. Like, that's yeah. how it works. Mm-hmm. Like, oh no, okay. Yeah, jinkies. Yeah. So Reagan starts not feeling well. She starts mm-hmm. not like she's not eating or sleeping right. She's feeling anxious about her room. She's being kind of aggressive and uh like more physically active than normal. She's not doing well in school. Uh well, she's being tutored by Sharon, so not like in school, but like she's not focusing correctly on her studies stuff like that Mm -hmm. uh and like so chris takes her finally takes her to a doctor and who whose immediate response is like listen people are far too willing to accept some psychological explanation for something without checking the body first like we gotta Mm -hmm. find out what's in your kid's brain but you know we gotta look Uh at some stuff yeah um he looks at some stuff and doesn't find anything and puts her on Ritalin. It's <laughs> like, this will calm her. This will like, it's all hyperactivity stuff. This will fix it probably. Yeah. You know, let's take And this is look. kind of a, cause a lot of these. So the, uh, the thing that this, that inspired this book, I mean, we talked about the Rosemary's baby angle, but like the exorcism. Oh part yeah. Of the exorcism, yeah. 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 Inspired by the exorcism of this anonymous 14-year-old boy named, uh, I mean, they call him Roland Doe. That's not his name. Yeah, okay. 
um, in 1949 and and there's without getting into like a ton of details there's kind of a standard push and pull between like quote eyewitness accounts Mm -hmm. and people being like really though (laughs) (laughs) and i i feel like in when we come up against this kind of like 70s exorcism book there is like there's always some question as to whether the people who thought they were performing an exorcism, like whether they were just interpreting somebody's what we would today recognize as mental illness as like somebody being possessed by a demon that needs to be exercised from their bodies. And this this book is asking some of those questions. It's asking, but it also feels like it's like say it's it's subverting that a little bit too. It's just like saying, yeah, we're just going to throw at some of our modern brain medicine at the problem yeah without yeah without was, thoroughly investigating the possession angle for i was re- <laughs> yes i was really struck by this dr klein character who is like poo-pooing psychiatry for a while i mean <laughs> come on <laughs> like really just like Listen, we got to treat the body first. People are people are, you know, this new age medicine nonsense. I was like that's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. And like ultimately he is the one who's like we got to see a psychiatrist. Your daughter has like split personality disorder or something. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um and all of that all of the the medical stuff in the book takes a lot longer than what it apparently what it does. Uh, in the film it's just there's more time spent with it and it's everything from you know her being directly interviewed by this dr klein guy to them you know running 15 different scans on her and taking a spinal tap Mm -hmm. to taking her to a separate facility in ohio to have her looked at which the book really yada yadas it just says that they went there there's no scenes that take place there (laughs) it's very strange Mm -hmm. um to a psychiatric evaluation that involves like hypnotherapy where the demon speaks instead of her and stuff Mm -hmm. sure uh you know this book has a lot of um sexually suggestive and explicit content in it yeah, I read about uh, something that one character does with a cru- crucifix at one point. Yeah, that seems pretty rowdy. Seems pretty, pretty rowdy, pretty raunchy. Randy. Yeah, um, but you know, during one of those uh, doctor escapades, when Reagan, who is at this point pretty well possessed or something, uh-huh. um, you know, just like grabs a doctor by his crotch and is just like crushing him. While other people like have to like force her away from him, you know, like mm-hmm. this book is not messing around with that kind of stuff. Yeah, like um, the evil, the evilest thing you could do is to make a woman too horny for polite <laughs> society. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like Chris, the mom is like really trying to get Reagan some treatment. Um, before the like the the highest escalations of the medical treatment she throws this dinner party she's like my daughter's acting kind of strange i went to this party at the white house and i met a psychic there and i Mm -hmm. am gonna invite her to my dinner party the guest list is the drunk director the youngish director of the second unit um a senator and his wife an apollo astronaut and his wife two jesuits from the georgetown seminary Mm-hmm. Her next door neighbors that okay. in this house that she rented, um, and this psychic from the White House dinner, mm-hmm. 
And during this dinner, uh, Reagan appears and is just kind of being weird and being strange and like giving people bad vibes. Mm-hmm. Not doesn't want to talk to the psychic. Mm-hmm. Uh, keep in mind at this point she's been prescribed Ritalin because when she met with the doctor separately, the doctor's like she curses all the time and is like telling me <laughs> like all sorts of nasty stuff. And mm-hmm. Chris is like, that's weird. Mm-hmm. Um, she comes down out of her room at the end of the dinner party and just stands there peeing on the carpet looks at the astronaut and says, you're going to die up there. And the astronaut's <laughs> like, I got to go. I'm leaving now. Uh-huh. And uh, then I think we, <laughs> it's really messed up. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think that night is when Chris finally sees Reagan, who has claimed this has happened before, Reagan in her bed, at night and the bed is like shaking violently like with her in it like it's Mm -hmm. trying to harm her or something Mm -hmm. more of the doctor stuff happens they go to ohio they come back um she gets this occult book in the mail from the psychic lady who's like i think you might want to read this uh no comment on that from chris Uh (laughs) uh and like the doctors are like, you know, she might be feeling guilt from the whole divorce thing. Kids don't really know how to handle divorce because it's the late 60s. Mm-hmm. You know, let's well, just... They'd, like, they'd only recently invented the concept of divorce. No, exactly. That's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is when the book kind of splits into a couple different things. One is they're not... Like, Chris doesn't want to hospitalize Reagan even though her condition is worsening. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's sort of in some kind of home care, like the doctor is like installing like a feeding tube because she's kind of wasting, but yet she has like periods of incredible strength. So they're restraining her on the bed. Mm-hmm. Um, that is when she does the, at one point she does the kooky like head turn around. Ooh, at, that is after she, um, masturbates with the crucifix right while she's like screaming at her mom i was gonna leave that implied but i'm it's cool that you it's cool that you brought it up you know sex ed um, yeah and a couple of different side stories crop up at this point the nearby church is seeing a series of desecrations okay the Karis, who's at that church at, at Georgetown, wants out of his like psychiatric gig and out of his formal responsibilities because he's having his crisis of faith. Yeah. Also, there is a police investigator named Kinderman, who at one point Blatty claimed that the show Columbo ripped him off with Kinder, <laughs> ripped off Kinderman. Uh-huh. Even though I think the first like pilot of Columbo was made before the movie. <laughs> he does have big Columbo vibes. Like mm-hmm. he cannot leave a scene less than twice. Right. Like he's always coming in being like, "Oh, one more thing." Mm-hmm. Uh asks a lot of questions. He's just one of his first just long, asking questions. His first long scene is with Father Karis and like he spends three pages just talking about movies he likes. Like he's mm-hmm. just this weird kooky guy who is also investigating what turns out to be a murder. Of the British film director, Ooh. Burke Dennings. Oh no, Murder Most Foul. He had come to Chris's house 
Uh, Chris was not there. Sharon had to run out to get some medicine, so she said, hey, Burke, can you stay with Reagan? And then the next morning, Burke's body is found at the bottom of the George of these like famous steps in Georgetown. I sent you a link to these steps, Andrew, look at the famous a little steps. while ago, because I know you love famous film steps. I do love famous film steps. Oh, these do look, these are, I mean, they're a little narrow to be Joker stairs. They are not the Joker steps from the film, the Joker. Oh, I actually have, I have been down these steps there. Yeah. So they're, they were originally called the Hitchcock steps because Mm -hmm. I think that was the last name of the guy who built them. Um, and then they are now referred to as the exorcist steps because they are featured prominently in the film The Exorcist. What are you chortling about? Just the see also section in this Wikipedia page says Potemkin stairs, Rocky steps, Joker stairs, <laughs> the music box steps, which I don't, I'm not sure what that what is. What are the music box steps? Uh, the focal point of a Laurel and Hardy short oh, film okay. released in 1932. So Other not as cool as the Joker. famous for their use in films. And there's only four of four. I of them know that they of, think of those three steps. I know what the Potemkin stairs are. No, I, I walked out last time I was in uh, DC visiting some of our mutual pals. Mm-hmm. They took me to, yeah, we were in Georgetown and they took me to see the, um, the uh, transformer statue, like the street art of the big transformer statues, <laughs> and my favorite, my favorite thing about these transformer statues is that a bunch of the people in the neighborhood really want them to be taken down, <laughs> including uh, the son, the fail son of Tim Russert, the conservative guy who used to host. Oh wow! The press. Oh wow! Uh, he said once to the DCist. Uh, what's to stop someone from putting up a statue of Joseph Stalin and saying, well, this is provocative. It's art. It speaks to me. <laughs> they're a nuisance. They're an eyesore and they detract from the spirit of the neighborhood. Free speech. Just, just like the, getting from Transformers to uh, well, why? What if someone puts up a statue of Hitler? I just love the <laughs> I love how quickly he gets there, you know, and then pretty near to there. You can go see the exorcist steps and walk down them. So sure. if you're in Georgetown. Couple of couple of hot spots you can check out. Great, right next to each other. I love it. Right, yeah, um, yeah. Love, so love to see landmarks from my favorite films. Burke Dennings got yeeted down these steps by somebody, mm-hmm. and Reagan's window kind of overlooks the steps. Mm-hmm. And multiple times in this book, people have been like, "Yo, is that window locked? Is that window? Can you close up that window? Make sure nobody she doesn't like do anything wacky." Right. Um. So the night I, I just want to like give you one of the haunting esque images here of her because yeah, I don't mm-hmm. want to describe some of the stuff that happens. That I mean, I you already, I mean, you I already said what it is, but like, I'm not going to read what what it looks like. Yeah, that's fine. It's not it's not a Christmas episode. We no. can't get we can't get that <laughs> we can't get that explicit about um, it. And also, when Burke Dennings is found, his head has been twisted all the way around, like somebody okay. you know. With superhuman strength. Mm-hmm. A ritual murder, perhaps. Okay. Um, but that night, after Chris gets the news and she's all upset, um, Reagan does this thing that I think in the movie is like, yeah, she's like crab walking down the stairs or something creepy. Um, it does, it always strikes me when I find a trope that like, 
Remember when The Ring came out and you're like, wow, I guess all the creepy girls in films move like that now. Yes, all films have creepy girls and they all move like weird spider children. Yes. I guess I didn't realize that that had already been a thing because I'm not a horror movie guy. So like, yeah, right. Reagan appears gliding spider-like rapidly close behind Sharon. Her body arched backwards in a bow with her head almost touching her feet was Reagan, her tongue flicking quickly in and out of her mouth while she sibilantly hissed and moved her head very slightly back and forth like a cobra. (laughs) There is a part of this book that sucks if you don't like (laughs) um, reading about children in distress. Sure. Like... May, you know, maybe that's a thing for people who just don't go into the horror genre at all, because that is kind of a trope, right? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. But this this girl is in distress for much of the book, and mm-hmm. parts of parts of it are just like, oh god, I just like thinking about not being able to help her does kind of stink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so okay, we get the goofy Columbo detective involved. We get. Uh, midway through the book, Chris goes to Father Karras, is introduced to him, you know, through the Jesuit folks, and is like, "You gotta help my daughter." And at this point, like we've we've moved past some of the creepiest stuff that Reagan does, and it just becomes mostly a book about Karras building up evidence, both for himself and for the church, that an exorcism would be warranted. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't because of his own crisis of faith I think he doesn't want to believe that she is possessed by a demon mm-hmm. Chris who has exhausted all medical uh, you know tactics is like I don't know what's wrong I just need I need I need more help I need yeah, something. And, and it's 1971 so he has tried like three things yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> that all rely on an extremely rudimentary yeah. understanding of the problem. But yes. yeah, sure. Um, He's all out of ideas. So Karis like starts assessing the situation and this, like this takes a lot longer than I'm going to spend time on it. But he, what I did find odd about the book, the only thing obviously is when he is like talking to the demon that is inside Reagan and it is saying things about his dead mom and about other characters that there's no way that Reagan could know. Karis's response to Chris at one point is like, listen, there is evidence that telepathy is a thing. Like, mm-hmm. it's not, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a demon just because the child read my mind and yelled at me about it. Mm-hmm. And that is like, when this book takes a lot of pains to create that kind of ambiguity about what is actually happening to her, some of it involves, well, listen, telekinesis might be a thing. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily a demon. Sure. Um, ultimately, the two things that kind of convince him are a kind of recording of the creature speaking that he then has to play backwards to understand what it's saying, which I thought was Naturally, a cool yes. thing. Mm-hmm. And a really haunting image of, uh, you can see in Reagan's like skin that her blood has pooled to say, help me. Uh, no, nope, nope, thanks, thanks, nope. <laughs> uh, and he's like, okay, I'm going to call the church. We're going to do an exorcism. Yeah. He expects to do it himself. 
And they're like, what if we call that famous exorcist guy? <laughs> if we get a name brand exorcist what in here. What if we this? get Father Marin in here? Mm-hmm. Um, so Mark Marin Mark, shows Mark up. Mark Marin comes. <laughs> Lock the gates. I'm getting this demon out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, oh, I got self-esteem problems. Let's get this demon out of here. Who are your, That's my Mark Who are Marin. your guys? Who are your demon guys? Um, and so Father Marin shows up. And I have a lot of cats. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's Pazuzu Day on the pod. Um, so Marin eventually does show up, and he is going to be the lead on this exorcism with Karis helping him. Uh, and at this point, again, like Karis is still not sure if like what is the difference between exorcism as a thing that a an, a person who is mentally ill needs to like feel better mm-hmm. or there's a demon in there like uh-huh. you know Marin is like no I'm pretty sure that there's a demon in there it knows who I am and it's yelling about me because I have fought it before in Africa mm-hmm. this demon and me have gone back a ways uh get ready we're going in mm-hmm. and the extra it, it was very late in the book for the exorcism to happen. I suppose that is not surprising. Um, it mostly revolves around them doing a lot of chanting of specific language that Karis keeps getting distracted from, which builds tension. Um, the The quote from Marin that is the crux of the novel that gets back to what I, I said Blatty, I think, it set out to do here. Mm-hmm. Karis, they, they they take a break, which seems wild to me. <laughs> they would take a break, but they do. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you know, you got to take care of yourself. You, you do. You do self-care, you indeed. Yeah, you can't exercise demons without exercising the sleepies. That's true. First. Um, Karis asks Marin, like, what's the point of possession? Like, why does it happen? Marin says, who can really hope to know? And yet I think the demon's target is not the possessed. It is us, the observers, every person in this house, and I think, I think the point is to make us despair, to reject our own humanity, to see ourselves as ultimately bestial, vile, putrescent, without dignity, ugly, unworthy. And there lies the heart of it, perhaps, in unworthiness. For I think belief in God is not a matter of reason. I think it is finally a matter of love, of accepting the possibility that God could ever love us. And it goes on and on from there, but that's kind of the thesis sure. of the book, I think, mm-hmm. is Marin being like, Listen, the demon's here to drive us away from God, and we have to drive the demon away. Mm-hmm. Marin does not survive the exorcism. Karis ultimately has to take the demon into himself and then jumps out the window. Okay. That's, it's kind of unclear exactly what the sequence of events is, um, <laughs> but... Another priest that we have met a few times shows up and gives him his last rites. And the lasting image that we get of Karis is one of like, in his eyes, a look of victory, of peace, of maybe his faith was restored sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like there's some like epilogue stuff with the with the cop and Chris and Reagan being better and stuff like that. Okay. So... I, I was. I guess we're just we're supposed to th- like the noble sacrifice yes. element of the. Okay, mm-hmm. the the noble sacrifice, the fact that the sacrifice is proof of 
God's love in as much as it's proof that the demon was real, I guess. Sure. Um, God of, would God loves us, and that's why he sends demons to... <laughs> To, to try to kill our to possess children. our children, yeah. The, the right. reason that they like move forward with the exorcism as much as they do is because like she hasn't slept in weeks, mm-hmm. and like her body is literally going to die. Like the goal yeah. of the demon is to physically kill her. So mm-hmm. pretty messed up. Um, it's, it's, it sounds that way. I would agree with your assessment. The the grossest like set piece stuff. Okay, yeah, hit me. Well, no, it's I think I've mentioned most of it. It's, you know, it's the really off, you know, the head spinning around. There's uh-huh. like a, there's some of the stuff where she is like channeling the dead British director. That's kind of creepy. Mm-hmm. Um but once Karis enters the picture as a an investigator of sorts, the the at that point you're like yeah reagan's got a demon in there we gotta get to the part of the book where they get the demon out like right. it, it ceases to be explicitly kind of haunting and spooky because it to me anyway it was on the page mm-hmm. you know like it was not haunting me in the same way i was like i was interested to know what happened next um but i was just waiting for the characters to come to the realization that an exorcism was necessary mm-hmm. um so like the spookier parts of it, the creepier parts of it are all in kind of the first half. Sure. So, yeah, I don't know. Is there anything you found about the book that we haven't talked about? Anything, any questions you have left? No, I think that we mostly got to it. It just is, it's a, it's a, it's an example of a specific genre that's kind of taking shape at a specific time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that accurately informed my expectations for what we would be like discussing <laughs> yeah. today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it is interesting to think about what Blatty Blatty claimed that he talked to one of the exorcists from that story. Yeah. That's what I saw on um, American Haunt, American haunting sink is that he, <laughs> he like got did a not notebook. Have, he did not have access to the written record, but he had spoken to like the priest that did it. Allegedly. Allegedly. And again, as with everything on American Haunting Sync, there is no citation provided for any of this data. So American the Jesuit Re- America the Jesuit Review said he like found a copy by illicit means <laughs> and, and used it to inform the novel. Mm-hmm. Um but anyway, yeah, it, it it is an interesting book to think about like the author who we've you know talked about w- the author. But mm-hmm. like what he thought was he was like what real information he thought he was drawing on as he was mm-hmm. writing it. Mm-hmm. it. It's like I don't I don't often think about that when I'm thinking about like it's a horror movie where horror stuff happens. Yeah, and it's interesting because he like clearly takes his faith at least somewhat seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Seems like and so it's it's not like it's maybe not like he was just reading this book to be like, hey, what uh inspiration can i get here for my for my work of fiction like there's it seems like there's some element of like earnestness to his exploration of these ideas yeah and and some of that i think also explains how like the characters are pretty compelling like they don't they reagan obviously is like the subject of demonic possession and whatever but like chris and father karis get like a pretty decent amount of 
stuff for you to think about, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of what is going on in their lives, um, why they are approaching the situation the way that they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that probably comes out of him being like, yeah, let me really think about what it would do to people if there was a possession in their lives. Yeah. So, yeah, that's The Exorcist. It's out of me now. You got it out. Woo. Good. I'm glad. And Don't I didn't take need it to- in, Andrew. I didn't need to grab it from you and throw myself out of my window in my office. So the wick- I think that's good. Okay. Sometimes <laughs> I like to just like skim the wiki article for a novel mm-hmm. just to like make sure I didn't miss any like giant plot points because right. usually the any any synopsis actually misses a lot of things. But well, it does. And often I, I find that like at the beginning of a book when I'm still getting my feet under me that I will like some details will pass me by that I need to remind myself of. Yes. Um, it when it talks about him like throwing himself out the window, it just links to a page about defenest like defenestration. defenestration. <laughs> just so you know, just in case you didn't know. Just in case know. you wanted to learn a cool vocab word. Like some people be having too much fun on Wikipedia. <laughs> um, but that's The Exorcist. Go watch the film if you want to get spooked. Rad. Um, I, I can't. I can't believe that that was like the first horror movie to get like Best Picture and or not get nominated. Like nominated for Best. He Picture. did win the Academy Award for the screenplay. I did. Okay. I did look that up. Good for you. Wild. Um, if you have ever exorcised a demon figuratively or literally send us an email about it overduepod at gmail.com hit us up on social media at overduepod please don't tag any demons when you do so i do not want them in our mentions we just got them all out of here don't don't attract them back to us please do not tag at pazuzu in our mentions Mm -hmm. don't do it our theme song is composed by nick larangis andrew if folks want to know more about the show where do they go OverduePodcast.com is our internet website. Up there, we have a bunch of links, all yeah. the social stuff that Craig mentioned, the books that we have read, and the ones we are going to read. Uh, we're coming up on November. We'll have a schedule up there for you sometime this week. Yeah. Um, we are also, as 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 we record this, it's in the future. As you're listening to this, it's in the past. Uh, we've got a bonus episode recording coming up about A Night in the Lonesome October by Roger Zelazny. Yeah. It's a book from the perspective of a dog. Creepy stuff's happening. It's a, it's it's more spooktober if, you're, if you want that. It's like a monster mashup from what I was reading about it. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we'll get there. We'll get into it. Okay. Um. If you want to, that will that will come up on the main feed at some point in the next couple of weeks. But if you want to listen to it early or sit in on the live stream that we do for these bonus episodes, patreon.com slash overdue pod is the website you want to go to uh, support the show financially, get access to our discord server, bonus episodes early, long read episodes early. We are getting underway with our next iteration of Stop Homer Time, which is about Emily Wilson's translation of the Iliad. Excited to talk about it. Very excited. Uh, I think that's that's most of it. Yeah, I think next week will be our uh, recent collab with oh, yes. okay. uh, Heaving Bosoms. We talked about uh, Fourth Wing um, by Rebecca Yaros. We had a great time. <laughs> we had a great time. It's so it's a long it's podcast. It's a long <laughs> podcast. Please enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, yeah, we'll have the rest of the November schedule up for you soon. 
Okay, everybody. Uh, thank you so much for exercising our demons with us. Thank and you. until we haunt you next time, please try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.